All right, how y'all doing today? What an awesome day it is. I mean, we started out this day slightly discombobulated. Anybody else? I know our worship team was having some, some things. We were having some things. And then Pastor Gabe and I are sitting out on the front porch, and a deer walks through the lawn, and he comes up, and he's eating out of our crab apple tree. And we're like, okay, it's going to be a good day. I feel like that's just a little, like a little rainbow from God. Like, it's going to be a good day. So welcome, all you guys. Um, I see some faces I haven't seen in a while. I'm excited. It's great to have you here. Um, if I haven't had a chance to connect with you or, or talk with you, catch me or catch Pastor Gabe after the service. We'd love to just kind of show you around, talk to you, catch up, um, let you know a little bit about ourselves. So, And there's time. We'll be hanging out afterwards. I know there's healing prayer going on. Um, so you're going to want to hang out anyway, right? So you might as well, while you're waiting your turn, uh, go through and do that. Welcome out there online, wherever you are. I know we have uh, Pastor Paphras and his congregation in Tanzania. Welcome, you guys. Again, I'm not going to say welcome in Swahili. I'm not even going to try, but welcome. Um, and then we have somebody I know logging in from, uh, from Kenya. So, And I'm not going to try and pronounce your name either. I'm sorry, but uh, welcome out there. Wherever you are in the world, um, just, just welcome. Happy to have you guys here. Um, we are in Ephesians, One Church, One Mission, One Jesus is the name of the series. Um, I've been loving this series. I hope you guys have. Uh, it's an interesting series in that we're going into an epistle of Paul, and an epistle is just, it's just a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church one that he was very fond of, one that he helped found, but one that was maybe having a little, starting to have some questions, or maybe potential for questions, potential for division. And he's trying to head that off at the pass and just say, look, let me, let me explain who you are in Christ so that you can be who you're meant to be. Instead of spending time arguing about who's better or this or that, arguing and division, he just says, let me just lay out who you are first. And once you understand that, the rest is going to fall into place. So he spends quite a bit of time trying to just, just remind them. Um, and last week, last couple weeks, first of all, we saw Paul just really commend them. Uh, Pastor Gabe taught that message. It's like, I'm praying for you guys because you guys, you're amazing. I see what you do. I see your efforts. I see your heart. I see the things that you're doing, and I am so thankful for you which is fantastic. But then Paul goes, I also understand human nature. And I know you're going to take those kudos and go, oh, we got this. We got the, and I don't need to even try anymore because Paul gave us some thumbs up. So the next time, last week, he says, remember, the only reason you can do any of these good things is not because you're fantastic people, but because Christ is in you. And Christ is empowering you to do these things. So the props go out to you for being obedient to what Christ is calling you to do and for using the gifts that he has given you to do the things he's called to do. That's where, that's where the praise comes in for you because you're actually doing these things. It's not because you're doing them because you are somehow um, empowered, you're, you're you're smarter, you're faster, you're better, you're better looking. Any of these, it's got nothing to do with that. And some of you are pretty good looking. Some of you, um, you all know who you are. 
but we're all blessed to be here. And, and we're all blessed that in Christ, we are all the same. And this is where Paul is. Paul is telling them, like, look, you're doing all these great things, but remember, he's teaching to, or writing a letter to a group of people that some were ethnic Jews, had been Jews their whole lives, and have just converted to Christianity. Some were what we call Gentiles, but, but a whole range of worshiping all kinds of other things or worshiping nothing, and they have come to know Christ. So there's two different sets of people in the room, <coughs> excuse me, and he's trying to tell them, don't think that you're better than the other side of the room just because somehow you were part of God's covenant. Now, I don't want to air quotes on God's covenant, but that was wrong. Um, we'll, we'll edit that out later. But the, the temptation of, of those who were born and raised ethnic Jews were to, was to say, we are children of God's covenant. We are God's chosen people. You guys, pointing at the Gentiles on the other side of the room, you're just lucky to be here. And so Paul is trying to correct that in this section. And we're in kind of a long section here today. Um, we're going to go from Ephesians 2.11 all the way to 3.13. So it's a meaty chunk, but it's all the same theme. And Paul is telling them, look, we were all sinners who were dead. And now in Christ we're alive. So because of that, don't we all share a common bond with no one being better than the other? That's what he's doing here. So if we go back to last week, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, we got it on the screen here. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay? So Paul... Paul said that, if you remember, he said that twice in last week's section. By faith you have been saved. By grace you have been saved, that is, by faith in Jesus. He says that twice to try and reiterate, like, look, this isn't anything you did. It was done for you. And he reminds them of that. So with that in mind, he continues this letter. Now he starts this section off, if you've been following along, Excuse me, by the way, if you ever are here and you need a Bible because you forgot yours, you don't have one or anything, in that back corner there's a basket there on the table. It's always got Bibles in it. And you can take one, you can borrow it, you can give it away. We'll get more. So do that. But if you're following along, you notice that in this section it starts out with the word therefore. In pretty much every translation, it's the first word in this section says therefore. So if you see it saying therefore, what would you automatically think? Okay, he's building on what he had just said. So with all those things I just told you in mind, therefore, here's what you do with this. So if we're going to do that and understand where we're headed, we need to go back and see what he's thereforing. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The last two verses. Here's what he says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Anybody ever heard teaching on this? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Okay, and then he goes, therefore, 
right? So to paraphrase, God sent Jesus to save you for a specific reason, his reason, not yours. Therefore, and he goes into this. Now, it's a big section. I'm not going to go verse by verse necessarily. I'm going to kind of bundle some together, so stay with me. By the way, for those of you who like the Greek lessons, there's no Greek lesson today. Oh, I know. I know. I just realized that this morning. I'm like, there's no, uh, but it's going to be good, so stay with me. Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, okay, and then there's a pause there, a, a dash, So, first of all, can you see kind of the snarkiness in this letter here? The so-called circumcision. What this is, it is the, he's talking about how the Jews refer to the Gentiles. We, being the Jews, are the circumcision. We're part of the original covenant. We are God's chosen people. We are the circumcision. You are the uncircumcised, the, the unwashed masses, so to speak. But he says clearly, performed in the flesh by human hands. And that's not a mistake. He's very intentional by saying, look, any act of human righteousness, like a circumcision done by a human being, a circumcision of the flesh there is, is just a shadow of the true righteousness that's in Christ Jesus. So nothing that a human could do could even approach what Christ can do. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, on the outside looking in. I started thinking about this idea of on the outside looking in. I found this picture Excuse me. <clears throat> this is Depression area children, uh, era children lined up outside of, I think that was actually a Macy's, like one of the first Christmas displays. They have no money to go inside, no money to do, in, uh, to hope to partake in that, but they can see it. And when I saw that picture, it just spoke to me about how the Gentiles were looking at the Jews, saying, We are God's chosen people. We're the blessed people. We're the people of the covenant. We have all these blessings and all these promises in store for us. And they're on the outside looking in going, but we're not allowed to partake in that. We just have to watch you partake in it. And anybody else here have this dynamic where if there's something you want, but you find out you can't have it, you're like, well, I didn't want it anyway. I never really wanted that. It's just a bunch of work that I have to do if I, if I get that gift. If you let me into your club, now there's things I have to do. I'm not sure I want that anyway. And so you start being kind of defiant. It's just human nature. We do that. Some translations use the words, by the way, excluded from citizenship or excluded from the commonwealth. And one scholar phrased that whole idea like this. He said, before coming to Jesus, Gentiles were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. 
it's not a real reason to be happy about where you are. But now, Paul says, there is real reason to rejoice. And they knew this. This isn't their moment of conversion. They've been experiencing this. But he's reminding them of the reason to rejoice. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were previously far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So to recap, what brought them near to the promises of God? It wasn't, was it their good looks and charisma? Was it their social status, their generous support of the church? their wealth? Was it that they had somehow gained insider status by, by uh, sneaking into Priscilla and Aquila's inner circle? It was none of that, right? It was, as Scripture says, by the blood of Christ alone. So it's nothing they did. And this is the central theme of everything Paul's talking about here today. It is by the blood of Christ alone that you have the blessing of being allowed into his family, being adopted into his family. No matter which side of the aisle you're on, it's by the blood of Christ alone. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now he's talking about what, what both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now you might think that he's talking about when the, when the veil is torn in the temple and at, at Christ's resurrection, things like that. You're thinking that's maybe what he's talking about. It's a little bit more direct here, and, Paul, and it's, it's something that's, very fresh, a fresh wound in Paul's spirit here. First of all, Jesus didn't come to enforce peace, where he says, he himself is our peace. He didn't come to enforce peace. What's enforced peace look like? It rarely works, does it? On a, on a human level, it's like, if you two don't quiet down back there, I'm going to turn this car around. Anybody heard that? Does that work well usually? Maybe immediately, but not for long. This says he himself is our peace. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. But going back to the wall of Jerusalem, remember in the temple, and I've shown you pictures before. I don't have one up here today. But in the temple in Jerusalem, there's an inner court and there's an outer court. And the inner court only Jews were allowed in that inner court. But in the outer court, the Gentiles could come. But there was a wall separating them. And there was a very strict rule about allowing Gentiles into the inner court. In fact, you couldn't, period. But let me ask this question. Think about this. If the Jews and the Gentiles were so at odds all the time and to the Jews, the Gentiles were just unwashed, dirty masses, like they shouldn't even be around us. Why then, when they built the temple, was there an area that Gentiles were allowed in at all? Anybody ever thought of that? Does that make sense? I saw Andrew doing the money symbol. It's actually not that. You might think that. It's because God said so. 
It's because God said, there's going to be a reason. Isaiah was told by God. Isaiah 56, 7. You can write this down and check it later. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain. He's talking about eunuchs and foreigners, right? Just a catch-all term for Gentiles. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. He was told, Isaiah was told and then told the people. So when they built the temple and the temple grounds, they're like, okay, yeah, there's that thing that God told Isaiah. So we do have to make a place for the Gentiles to be allowed. So we'll let them in. We're not going to let them all the way in. We'll let them into this special little segregated area for them. But remember this also, that Paul's writing this from jail, house arrest, prison. Why was he in prison? Anybody remember? Why was he arrested to begin with? There was an allegation that he had brought a Gentile into the inner courts. And they were accusing him of this. So this is why Paul then uses this illustration. I'm going to break down that wall. Bring two together. There's no longer a wall. Now we know the Jews were a little bit slow on the uptake, and so the wall stayed there for quite some time. But that's what Paul is saying here. So how then, we go into the crux of this message then that Paul is trying to relay to this, how did, how did Jesus take these two separate antagonistic groups with different backgrounds, different everything, cultures, everything, how did he bring them together? Because this is what Paul is saying. Made both groups into one. That's amazing. So how did he do that? Um, Paul, in a few verses, is going to say it's a mystery. But here, he just answers that question flat out. Ephesians 2, 15, 16. By abolishing in his flesh the hostility... Okay, we know there's hostility, animosity between the two groups, which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new person. Okay, there's a lot here to look at, right? In this way, establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the hostility. So what he's talking about here is the Jews and Gentiles were constantly at odds. The, the Gentiles looking at the Jews going, look at all these silly laws that you guys claim to follow. And yet we can see that more often than not, you don't. You fail at it, but you want to say you do. And the, and the Jews then looking back at the Gentiles going, but you don't even try. You don't even try to, to follow any of the Mosaic laws, any ordinances. You are just, you are just heathens doing whatever you want to do. So there was constantly this tension. We don't want to be a part of your group because you're all hypocrites. Well, at least we try. You guys don't try at all. So there's always this tension. <clears throat> but Jesus came to bring them both together into one. Even more 
In verse 16 there, or 15 there, he might make the two into one new person. He's talking about more than just we can all be in the same room and get along without fighting. He's like, you're not even two groups within this room. You are one group. And more than one group, you're one person with one goal, with one heart beating in you. This is what he's talking about here. And he uses the word, it's a mystery. I like how Paul gets away with that every now and then, by the way. The two shall become one. This is a mystery. Like, okay, don't ask. You guys wouldn't understand. It's a mystery. I love, I love how he does that. I think when he does that, though, he's like, let's not get caught up in how this works. Just know that it does. And at some level, that's got to be okay because we're not always going to get an answer. But since Jesus came to fulfill the law that neither Jews nor Gentiles could possibly uphold correctly, he paid the price for that sin. Our failure to keep the law, he paid that penalty and reconciled us to God and reconciled us to each other. So let me repeat that idea. We are reconciled because of what Jesus did. Not because of anything that we did. Not because we were able to to sit in a room and hash it out and negotiate. And how are we going to do this? Well, we'll allow you in, but you have to sit over there. We'll allow you in, but but you have to promise not to make us get circumcised. And all, all these rules. It wasn't through any of that. It's through what Jesus did. And the source of the arguments, the strife that they were having was not the law itself. It was Satan stirring that pot, saying, look at the hypocrites. And then saying, look at the heathens over here. Causing that animosity. But with the source of those arguments rendered powerless now, they can be reconciled to God and reconciled with each other. And this is what Paul is illustrating here. And here's the result, verse 19. It's a beautiful scripture. So you, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He's telling them all this. This is who you collectively are. Not you are, but you're trying to get in, or you're trying to get in and you're not. You're all fellow citizens. And here's the reason for that. Verse 20, 21. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So what's he talking about there? Christ is the cornerstone of a building that's coming together. It's a lot to digest here. In whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Is he trying to say we're all with Christ as the cornerstone being come, we are coming together as one body with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us equally? That's exactly what he's saying. And here it is from 1 Corinthians First Corinthians, again, Paul writing this, but to a different church, different issues. First Corinthians 3, 16, 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person for the temple of God is holy and that's what you are. The Spirit of God dwells in you and you are holy. That is what you are. This is what he's telling this church. Like, stop thinking you're better than them. Stop trying to backhanded exclude them. Stop looking at them from across the room going, you're lucky we even let you in here. And the other group going, you're lucky we share the same space with you. And stop. None of you would be anything if God didn't look at you and say, you are holy because I say so. That's the bottom line of what he is trying to say. Individually, yes, Scripture says you are a temple of God with the Spirit dwelling in you. But together, in Christ, you are part of something much bigger than yourself. Much bigger than yourself. And with Christ as the cornerstone, you and other believers, regardless of where you came from or who you were before or where you hope to go, you form a new creation greater than the sum of its parts. That's what the body of Christ is. And that's who you are. There's a fourth century excuse me, fourth century leader in the church. Um, his, his name is St. John Chrysostom. And he's actually a leader in the Ephesian church. He's from that region of Ephesus. It was in 14, uh, 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 the fourth century that is. We have an image of him. This is a mosaic that's on the ceiling, the dome of the, uh, it's called the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. You got, have you been to Istanbul? Have you seen this? Okay. The Hagia Sophia is an amazing, amazing architectural wonder. But here's what, here's what this guy said. Again, he's, he was from Ephesus. He's from the re- region that they're talking about here. It is not that Christ has brought one people group up to the level of the other, but that he has produced a greater. Let me say, it's not that he's taken the Jews and said, okay, I'm going to bring you down to the level of the Gentiles so you can meld, or the Gentiles, I'm going to bring you up to the level of the Jews so that you can get along together. Listen to what he says. But that he has produced a greater as if one should melt down one statue of silver and another of lead, and the two together should come out as gold. Isn't that good? I love that. St. John Chrysostom. So with that truth established now, Paul explains that this was God's plan all along. Because there is that tendency for the Jews in the crowd to go, look, you're only here because some of us dropped the ball. It was God's plan all along. Ephesians 3, we're in chapter 3 now, verses 4 and 5. By referring to this, when you read, it's like, go back and reread what I just told you. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to mankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. He's saying what was, what was hidden before is now revealed 
through the Holy Spirit. So this great mystery to be revealed. Now, even reading that, you might go, okay, he said it was a mystery. I think I know what he's talking about. And this is another reason I love Paul. This great mystery, verse 6, to be specific. Remember, he's talking to two people that are going to take whatever he says and try and figure out a way to go, well, yeah, but we're a little better, right? To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's like, don't try and twist this. The inclusion of Gentiles in the promise of Christ was not plan B because of a failure or some redirection of God's plan. Verses 11 and 12, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. You love that? We have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So the mystery here that Paul's trying to explain is that the church isn't an organization. It's a living organism composed of mutually related and interdependent parts. And you can't have, if you have interdependent parts, mutually related, that are functioning as one body, you can't have one group thinking they're better or somehow different than the others. Remember, Paul, again, wrote to the Corinthians uh, in 1227, now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. He's trying to tell them, you are, you are empowered by Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, you have all that, but you're part of something bigger. Christ is the head of the body and the Holy Spirit is its power. And the body functions through the faithful use of its members' various spiritual gifts given by divine choice, and individually as he determined. Bless you. So because one has administration, another one has craftsmanship, another one has healing, another one has a gift of just extreme faith, all those things, it doesn't make one better than another. You're all part of the same organism. And if the body of Christ is to function as intended, there can't be any division. There can't be any argument over hierarchy or who's better or more important or more entitled to the promises of God. Paul just underlines it when he's writing to the Romans. The Romans are struggling with these things too. Romans 3.23. Anybody quote that off the top of their head? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And that should be enough to squash any argument about who's better, right? But it wasn't. So a little bit later, Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you ought not to think more highly of himself than he should, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It's like, don't think more highly of you than you should. And again, he goes on, Romans 12, 9 and 10, love must be free of hypocrisy. We don't have to think very hard to think about how you can show love from a hypocritical standpoint. Love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another 
in honor. That's what it means to put someone else ahead of you. You're not just saying, oh, oh you go first because you're supposed to. You say, I'm going to put you first because I love you and I honor you and I should. That's why. It's not a law saying you have to do that. It should flow from your heart. And we'll see that this is what's required of us as the church to be effective disciples of Christ. We have to have humility. We have to reject evil. We have to put the needs of others ahead of ours, ahead of our needs, ahead of our convenience, ahead of our plans, and work with, not against one another, because as the body of Christ, we have a God-given purpose, and that is to make him known and glorify him in this world. And we do not do that by arguing and bickering with one another. We don't do that by acting like the rest of the world. The reason Paul's pointing this out is because says, this is what we're used to seeing. This is how the world functions, but it's not how you function because it's not who you are. God says you're holy, and that's the end of the story. And we'll see this principle throughout the rest of Ephesians, and it's found in all the teachings of Jesus. But in Ephesians, we see principles that apply to the unity of the church, the unity between a husband and wife, between a parent and child, between a boss and an employee, all the principles of unity come back to this very same thing. In humility, reject evil, put the needs of others ahead of yours. That's how that works. And our best defense against the purposes of the enemy, you are given the Holy Spirit. You can stand. We've all read the armor of God different scriptures. We know that you can stand and you can resist the enemy, but together as a body, encouraging, supporting one another, we work as one in the spirit and we will defeat the purposes of the enemy. One of his best tactics is to divide and conquer. Get you alone. Think that you can do it by yourself. I found this clip that I want to show you. It's, It's a Roman phalanx. The Roman army at that time was invincible because they came up with the idea of supporting one another. And let me show you this clip. Ready? Open the gates! Double time! Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. We do that best as the body of Christ. We do that best by supporting one another in unity. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful that your word is here to guide us. Your word is to help us to not only see the pitfalls and the problems that we're going to have, but to see the path out. 
to see how to stand apart, to see because you have declared us holy, it shows us how to do that in a world that does not honor those things that you consider holy. So Lord, help us to stand firm on those truths. Help us to stand firm with each other, shoulder to shoulder, not individuals on an island, but together, working together to glorify you. Father, we praise you in this place. Let us praise you with our lives. Let us praise you with our actions and our thoughts. Let our thoughts become your thoughts. Let our heart become your thoughts. Let us not see anyone around us as an inconvenience or as a stranger, but as a partner working together to glorify you in all that we do. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, we're going to go into communion right now. Um, Before we do that, uh, I want to remind you that healing prayer is taking place immediately after, um, the, right after the worship. So as worship is, is winding down, if you want to just come up on the left, on this, your right side up in here by the TV, um, we'll have, I think Sandy, uh, we'll have a sign-up sheet. So if you want prayer, and it doesn't have to be like, I have a broken leg, can you fix that? It can be for anything, no matter how big. We are the body of Christ, and we are here to support and pray for one another, I urge you to take part in that. So just come up front and be a part of that, and they, and they will do that. But there's no need to rush out of here either. Let's stick around. Let's get to know each other. Let's support one another. Encourage, pray for, because that's what we're here for. Amen? When we take communion, we do it. Um, all you have to do is say, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You don't have to be a member of this church or any, go through any special ritual. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, we invite you to partake in communion with us. Up front here on this side and this side, we will serve you. We have bread and gluten-free crackers, and then we'll have a cup of wine. And you just dip into the wine and take it like that. If you don't want wine or you want to serve yourself, we have a self-serve table in the back there. We also have prayer team in the back. If you want prayer for just anything while we're doing communion or worship, feel free to head back there. Um, But let's Let's partake in communion with grateful hearts and look at the people in line next to you, not as when they're done, it's my turn. Say, these are my people. This is my body. God has made me one with these people for a reason. Let's discover that purpose together. Amen? Thank you, guys.